Alrighty, the book of Esther. This book is uh, it's a favorite in many ways, but at the same time, Esther comes with a little bit of baggage, uh, some history. There are individuals, uh, go back and do much research, and uh, some godly individuals, some uh, well-known persons from the history of church and uh, theological writings have had major, major issues with Esther uh, on a number of different fronts. But does anyone know the primary uh, problem that people have with Esther. There's a pretty big thing that people say, this makes this book hard uh, for us to want to look into and accept as being from God. No mention of God's name in the book of Esther. I've got that note a little bit further down there uh, in number one under themes and theology, seeing God's sovereignty in that. Uh, We'll cover at a later point, but uh, some will say it's the only book not to mention the name of God. Depending on how far you study and how you do a little word translation, you can argue that the Song of Songs doesn't use God's name, although in probably your English translation, there is a verse, chapter 8, that we'll look at later to kind of rehab this conversation that uh, can be translated, uh, again, depending on which school thought you want to follow there on on Hebrew word language. Uh, So that kind of gives Esther, there's really no opportunity to even translate a word. The book of Esther doesn't have God's name in it. And so people look at that and go, this is a problem. This is an issue. If you're you're writing about God and who he is and what he's about, and this is his book and his his story, he's not mentioned in there. This, you know, how can this, you know, glorify him? And then when you get into uh, some of the inner workings of what happens, they, they're just a, it kind of left a bad taste in people's mouth. But uh, the book is named after the heroine, uh, whose name is Esther. Her name means star. The author is unknown. Uh, people posit a lot of names for it. One common one you will hear is that it's her uncle, Mordecai, who is a very prominent figure in the story. They'll say that Mordecai wrote this because he's the one who had the knowledge of what was taking place and what was happening. However, with kind of the, the elevated status and some of the accolades that are are put upon Mordecai, it it would almost feel very self-serving if he were writing the book and speaking of it in that language. And they'll say, well, editors came in later and filled in the parts where he was humble and all this. But, you know, it's, again, it's unknown. uh, But we do know and understand from what we see with this that whoever was writing it was most likely a Jew because it's got a a very clear uh, direction and support and... uh, Uplifting of the Jewish people and their cause. Uh, It's very, um, I'm missing the word here. Sympathetic, that's it. Sympathetic uh, to the Jewish cause of the Jewish people. and uh, But also, at the same time, the person who did this did have some knowledge of the inner workings of things taking place within the castle. They were able to go in and look at some of the writings that were, that were, uh, that were kept on file there. They knew some pretty significant details from inside the palace, inside what was taking place. So it wasn't just you know necessarily somebody out on the street, uh, but they had a pretty good uh, opportunity to engage with those things. The date is laid dated uh, later in the Persian Empire. Remember last week we talked about the Persians overcame the Babylonians and part of their uh, operating with people as you look through the book of Daniel and God begins to move in the king's heart and control that is they began to allow some of the Jews to go back to their homeland. Before they were all gone uh, the book of Esther takes place. Uh, So the purpose of this book was uh, showing God's sovereignty in in every situation that God is always in control. Remember from this book or not from this book but from the 
Bible, we've been talking about the thread of the promise from Genesis 3, the heir that was going to come. We've been, we looked at a number of challenges where, you know, God wipes out the people from the face of the earth. Well, how does the promise go forward with that? Continues on through Noah. And, you know, you got these heirs, you got these descendants. Abraham, you're going to have descendants. Well, he doesn't have a child. You know, he doesn't have his own heir. So therefore, how can it go? And over and over again, we've seen a number of uh, apparent roadblocks. You know, this is going to be a problem. The, 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 God's promises can't go forth. His purposes can't be accomplished because they're at a dead end. Well, as we get into this book, we see that begin to take place once again. Uh, they're in exile, which is bad enough being in exile, but while they're there, uh, more challenges to their nationality, to them uh, as a group. Uh, and so it looks like there, there's going to be this oppression, this end to God's chosen people and what he takes place. And when you go back and look historically, the Jews always had enemies. I mean, when you think about, we talked this last week of opposition to God's work, there was always an enemy against the Jewish people, uh, even up to modern time with Nazi Germany. You remember, you know, uh, with Hitler and all things that were there. So there's just this historical thing. Uh, but one commentator noted that if you wanted to kind of encapsulate, maybe give a tagline to Esther, uh, it's how to survive in exile. You know, what do you do when you're, when you're away, when you're off in the desert, when you're off in the wilderness, you, uh, you know, are trusting in God, you want to depend on him, what do you do? He said Esther is kind of a case study uh, in how to do that. And the illustration of this comes about in a Jewish festival called Purim. Uh, this festival is still celebrated today. So there's this festival and you go, what's this festival about? Well, we're going to look at what it's about today and it's to this challenge of the Jewish people. Uh, there is a villain in the story. His name is Haman. Now again, looking in the kind of historical context and people being, you know, having grudges and chips on their shoulder and all this sort of stuff, Haman was the descendant of a guy named Agag. A-G-A-G. He was an Amalekite. When the Israelites came back to the promised land, they had to run the people out of the promised land or kill the people who were there. And we talked about this, and I know you all remember it so well because you remember every detail that we've covered in the Old Testament. But all the way back with Abraham, God told Abraham that his descendants were going to go to Egypt and they were going to be there some 400 years because he said the sin of the people in the promised land hadn't reached its full measure. And I made a note to remind you then because people look at and say as the, the Israelites came out of Egypt back into the promised land and they annihilated people. They killed them. Men, women, children, animals. I mean, they, they wiped them out. People go, what kind of a loving, caring God does that? Remember that sin brings about the wrath, the judgment, and the punishment of God. And so God telling Abraham this said, their sins are what is going to lead to their death. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You know, we, we see that and we see the same pattern throughout. And so as they come into the promised land and they destroy the people who are there, the Amalekites are one of the groups who were there, descendants of, of, of Amalek. And their king at that point was a man named Agag. God told Saul, when you destroy this group of people, kill everyone and everything. And when Samuel came to where Saul was, he saw that there were herds of, of flocks and there were, you know, some people still alive and they had taken plunder for themselves. And Samuel said to Saul, what have you done? God told you to destroy everything. And Samuel said, well, I brought it back to give an offering. And, and Samuel said, no, 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 you obey God 
Because obedience is better than sacrifice. Very, very important part of Saul's story and his disobedience to God. So if you go back and look at 1 Samuel 15 is where this account happens. Not turn there, but if you want to kind of get the historical context. 1 Samuel 15, it says that Samuel, as the prophet, when Saul didn't kill King Agag, it says, this is a quote from the ESV, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Saul didn't kill him and destroy him. Samuel, the prophet of God, did. Now, let me ask you. Ancient times, tribes, bloodlines, genealogies. When someone kills brutally, gruesomely, one of your descendants, your relatives, does that carry hatred and anger forward? Yes, it does. And we do it for generation after generation after generation. And remember God speaking in the Bible saying that those who sin against God, he will punish the generation of sons, you know, four and five generations. These We talked about generational sins before that get passed on. Hatred, racism, prejudice, you know, violence. These things passed on and on. So I'm tying all this together. We haven't even got to the story yet, but Agag was the king who was killed. His descendant is a man named Haman who's very pivotal in the book of Esther. All right? So that foundation in place, uh, I want to kind of walk through the the story, the account of Esther, and we'll pause at a couple of points to look at uh, some of these key verses who are here. Uh, basically, King uh, 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 Ahasuerus is also uh, from some of the archaeological finds that we have. This is where scripture uh, gets great affirmation from archaeological record. It was probably King Xerxes I. Uh, it was said about King Xerxes I that he loved battles, women, and parties. That's what secular literature had to say about him. So if you've ever read through the book of Esther, what's the opening scene about? The king is throwing a party. Got all of his officials in. He's throwing this big, huge party, probably after, you know, a conquest and battle. And he has a very beautiful queen. And after several days of drunkenness and partying, and she's hosting a, a party for the women, the king invites his queen. He wants to come and he wants to show everyone how beautiful his queen is. Now, there is discussion here. And this is part of this whole scandal about the book of Esther, that it wasn't just to walk in and let them see how beautiful you are, honey. It is more of a voyeuristic peep show sort of thing. Because remember, you're not dealing with godly people who love the Lord and want to honor him and what they're doing. This is a pagan culture. Don't know, but it's part of the speculation, part of her resistance to say, I don't want to go do this. So the queen tells the king, no. Now, If you're the king, you don't like being told no. Nobody tells the king no, including the queen. And so the king, rather than making his own decision, goes to his buddies and says, what are we going to do about this? And his buddies are like, this is going to be a problem because if the queen won't listen to you, my wife ain't going to listen to me in my house. And I need to be the king of my castle. So he says, you banish the queen to where she never has interaction relationship with you so that our wives all know what I say goes. And so the king does that. Well, a couple of days later, he comes out of his drunken stupor and is like, oh man, 
again. I don't have a queen. <laughs> she was a beautiful queen. She was a good queen, but now I don't have a queen. And so they set about to have a contest, a beauty contest, for the king to select the next queen. So they gather fair maidens, virgins from all around the land. They bring them in. They put them under uh, the watch care of, of his individuals to give them skin treatment and beauty makeovers and all that stuff that you women do so that they're you know beautiful uh, princesses for the, for the king. And then they have a beauty show and they get to come in and, and they're all paraded before the king. And again, here's the thing. We look at the book of Esther and we're like, oh, it's such a sweet love story. It's so good. And we imagine the Disney princess process here that they come in flowing gowns and they do a little, you know, ballroom dance stuff. And the king goes, oh, she's beautiful. And I'll, you know, go fight a battle for her and win her hand and all this sort of stuff. And we have a Disney version of it. But it was probably more like Las Vegas version of what was going down, all right? Uh, and just, uh, do you imagine, you know, the, the debauchery, the fleshliness? Prehistoric bachelor, yeah. Kind of fits to, yeah, yeah y'all didn't think about it. Exactly. I, I don't watch it, but the little clippets and the snippets and the things that I read and see about it, I'm like, okay, that, it's just every wrong reason for wanting to be in a relationship and get married and how you evaluate the criteria, the king set forth here. But in all of this, there's a young lady named Esther who is a Jew who gets pulled into the preparation process. And when it comes time for selection, she is chosen to be the next queen. This young lady has an uncle. Is it uncle? Cousin. I think it's uncle. Named Mordecai. And Mordecai tells her, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Just leave that out of the conversation. Not, not lying, just leave that out of the conversation. You're like, okay, maybe, you know, exiles, foreigners, you know, wives, just, okay, we, maybe we can grasp the context of that. Just leaves that detail out. She's selected as the queen. And then at the, the end of chapter 2, you're looking at verse 19 there, uh, says, uh, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting by the, at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Look at this. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Make a note of this, what happened. And so they're keeping official records of the king's um, activities. And so then you move on. Well, chapter 3, Haman enters the scene. And Haman is the second in command to the king. He walks around thinking he is the bomb diggity in everything that he does. Everybody bows and, you know, they want Haman's, you know, respect. And they want to be on his good side because he can, you know, work things in their favor. He's a shady character. And, and, uh, but Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman. He, you know, whether it's faith-driven, whether it's only... The, he doesn't bow to Haman and it bothers him makes him mad that, that Mordecai, any man doesn't bow, but then knowing that he's a Jew. Remember Haman and his history? Those Jews. 
and it gets under his skin. He cannot stand it, and he looks for and begins to desire, and vengeance and bitterness and rage wells up within him, and he wants to find a way to kill the Jews. So eventually and ultimately, he gets to the king, and he says, you know, king, you know, there's this group of people who tells lies about them. You know, they're, they're deceitful. They're trying to undermine. They're trying to do these things. What you need to do, king, is you need to establish a day by the law of the, the Medes and the Persians, which these laws, when they were written, they could not be repealed. You could not repeal a law once it was written in the law of Medes and the Persians. So there needs to be a law that on a, on a certain date, anybody who wants to can go and kill Jewish people. Let's annihilate them and wipe, wipe them out. They are a threat to national security. And so they took this, they cast lots, a die basically, that was called a pure, P-U-R, and they cast the lot to determine what day was going to be this national kill Jews holiday. That that was it. How do we know the day? Let's roll it. Looks like it's the 6th. All right. This day, we're going to go and we're going to destroy the Jewish people. Mordecai hears about this and goes to Esther and says, Esther, you've got to intervene. You've got to help your people now. Well, Esther's panicked. She realizes that you don't come into the presence of the king uninvited. And guess what else she learned? You do go into the presence of the king when you are invited. (laughs) Remember from back in chapter 1. But she knows that it's not her time to be in with the king. He had his harem of ladies and there was a schedule. There was a rotation and it wasn't her turn. And she was like, if I go in there, he can have me killed on the spot. So you see this kind of whole tension of how things are working? Well, I can't do this. Well, Mordecai then tells Esther in chapter 4, verse 14. I'm sorry, let's go at verse 12. And, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said when she said, I can't go in there, it's not been my 30 days yet. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So here's the cool thing about this. Up to this, we still haven't had God's name. Even right there, it's not a reference to God, but what do you think what Mordecai is saying? You know what? The one we serve, deliverance is going to come. In his mind, it's a foregone conclusion. There's going to be deliverance. There's going to be rescue. God is not going to forsake his promises. He's not going to let us end as a people right here. It's going to happen. And Esther, you can be a part of that and you can step out in obedience and faithfulness and and God can use you in that. But if you don't, God will bring deliverance in another way from another path. And then you'll be the one who will be destroyed in this. But maybe God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. That's probably, my guess is, if you're familiar with the book of Esther at all, that may be the most famous verse from the entire book. Because we set it in the context, which is a very important context. That who knows, but that God has placed us where we are, when we are in history in this time, for such a time as this, to accomplish God's will, God's plan, and God's purposes at this time and in this season. Whatever that looks like for you, for your family, for future generations, we are pivotal under the power and the leadership of God and obedience to Him, to God's will, His plans, and His purposes being accomplished and being worked out. So Esther then tells Mordecai to have everyone fast for three days. Fasting is uh, very important in Scripture. Uh, we, we see it throughout. I'll talk some more about this later. Uh, but uh, 
we, we see fasting here. So she tells everyone to fast for three days. Basically, they're fasting and they're praying. Fasting and prayer in the Bible usually went together when you gave up food, you prayed in that time. Tells everyone to pray. And then this is where it gets so fun. Love this part of the story. She uh, goes in and uh, she, she goes before the king and the king extends the scepter. He doesn't kill her on the spot. She invites him to a banquet. Says, hey, would you, would you come have a meal? King's like, sure, you know, Queen Esther, be happy to do that. So she's preparing a banquet that the king's going to come to and says, hey, let's invite Haman as well, your second in command. So she's planning a banquet the king is invited to. Haman knows that he's coming to this. Haman goes home and tells his wife, honey, guess what happened today? I get invited to a banquet with the king and the queen tomorrow. He's just so filled with pride and he's so excited, but it bothers him, this Mordecai guy over here. He can't be happy with what's going on because he's so so filled with, with hate and vengeance to him and so he hatches this big plan that he is going to build a gallows to have Mordecai hanged on his enemy that he can't stand you know this Jewish guy it's in works they're going to destroy all the people but he wants Mordecai to die a very special death so they start building this gallows well he goes to uh, to he goes in and he has this interaction with the king and it's awesome the king comes in and says Haman you know I've been thinking because it just so happened that the king was having a restless night one night couldn't sleep so you know what he did he did what we all do when we can't sleep he read he went. He had the the official court records brought to him. They're reading the court. Yeah, you're like, I don't read when I'm sleepy, but you listen to my sermons. It helps you go right to sleep, right? I, I know how it is. <laughs> That's but he has the the official court records brought into him, and they're reading the accounts of stuff. And it just so happens that they read that there was a man named Mordecai who heard about a plot to kill the king. He informed Esther, the queen to notify the king so they prevented the king from dying and the king hears that and he says did we do anything to honor this Mordecai guy he saved my life he did the right thing did we do anything to honor him and they hadn't so Mordecai or I know Haman bebops in the next morning the king says hey Haman I got a question for you if the king wanted to honor someone what do you think the king ought to do to honor that person Haman thinks he's talking about himself and he thinks, oh, the king wants to honor me, just like the queen does. So if it were me, what would I want to have happen to me? And here's what he says. You, you put him on a king's horse, decorate him up, king's clothing, and you give a high-ranking official from the king to lead this person through the streets, singing his praises about how good he is and how, how the king wants to honor him. That's what you ought to do, king. And the king says, that's a great idea. Get this. You, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And the king says, why don't you do that for Mordecai. What? And guess who the servant is that's leading Mordecai through the streets, singing his praises to the people? It's Haman. Haman is the one doing this. It's awesome. Just the all of a sudden, boom. And again, you're watching God's sovereignty, how he works things out here. So this is taking place. Uh, th- this happens. They're building the gallows. The, you know, the, the meal still hasn't happened. He goes home just beat down. I mean, he, he's just absolutely overwhelmed with you know, grief at what's taking place. Look at chapter 6, uh, verse 12. 
says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. This is after he's taken uh, uh, Mordecai on his, his thing through the street. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him your life's going to end before his my response well why didn't you tell me that three days ago woman you know if you guys saw this coming why did you wait you didn't give me this warning then I got gallows being built I've just taken this thing through but you see here there's this this recognition that there is a special blessing on these people and a power that watches over and protects these people and so this begins to transpire. He goes in to the banquet. Okay, finally, I'm going to go with the king and the queen now. Uh, and so basically the king you know, asks Esther and says, Esther, what is it that you want? And so Haman's there, had a really rough day, you know, of, of, you know, just to put it in, in simple terms, had a really rough day. And then Esther, with Haman there, says, King, I want you to know I'm Jewish. Can you imagine what Haman is doing? I mean, the dude is sliding under the table. Are you kidding me? Because I'm Jewish, and there's been this move set about to wipe out all of my people, including me. And King, I want you to do something about it. And you know who set all this stuff in motion? The wicked Haman. Wow. To oh, to have had cameras in that day and time to see what's going on with with just you know his expressions of this, the king processing all this just you know gets up, walks out, take a walk, clear his head. Haman then begins to beg Queen Esther, "Don't do this, save me, spare me." Like I guess grabs her hand or just is kneeling. However, the whole situation is working out. He is on the couch. With Queen Esther, when the king walks back in, the king thinks Haman is trying to rape the queen or attack her in a forward manner. At, at, at most, he's not treating her appropriately. Well, now the king is outraged. And so he has you know, his guards grab him and says, well, what am I going to do? And one of the guys, one of the security guards goes, oh, you know what? We just built this huge big ha- uh, gallows right out in the city square. And the king says, hang him on it. And you're like, wow. I mean, just how all of this is totally everything completely turned around. Haman is hanged on the gallows. Then king with Queen Esther with Mordecai comes in what's taking place and they've explained about the law going forth the law can't be repealed but what the king does is issue another law another edict that says the Jews can defend themselves on this day anyone that comes after them they in turn can be destroyed killed and wiped out because of their aggression against the Jews the day of uh, Purim happens remember the poor the day that they they cast the die it happens Uh, it says that when all was said and done I think the number is 70,000 people were killed that day. Some of them, uh, you know, Jews as people attacked, but the Jews defended themselves and wiped out the attacking people who were coming after them. So God's people prevailed. And so the Jews now have a new festival called Purim. The day and the time when they were going to be annihilated, wiped out, destroyed. God delivered them through the faithfulness of a queen and her uncle who sought to do the right thing for their people 
And God's divine providence worked out every detail and every situation down to the, to the smallest detail so that the Jewish people continued to stand, to be you know, God's chosen people under his protection. And God's promises carried forth. His promises of, I will protect you, I will have descendants, I will bring about the seed. So all of this goes forth. And so those are some of the things that you see down in the themes and the theology. Um, God is sovereign over his circumstances. Uh, even when God doesn't make sense, he's still working. Uh, you can trust him in that. God's, God keeps his promises. Uh, and then you also see that God's blessing, uh, God blesses faithfulness and obedience uh, for his people in spite of their circumstances. When you're in a workplace, when you're in a work environment. I mean, Esther uh, was in a, a culture, in an environment that was very ungodly. And, and she maintained, uh, and again, we don't see God's name in here, but it, uh, the fingerprints are all over this book that they are being faithful to God and trying to honor him, make the best of the bad situation that they're in. Uh, another parallel account of individuals honoring God in the midst of a culture that wasn't seeking after God or Daniel. Uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember these guys, they were also living and taking a stand for God during the Persian Empire. So we see these two snapshots of people who were living in ungodly, godless cultures, but he said, you know what, we're going to follow God no matter what. We're not going to take the king's food, said Daniel and his friends. You know, Esther said, I'm going to go in, even though it's not my time, I'm going to go in and stand, and I'm going to trust God in this. You know what this says to us? I don't know if you know of any people who are in a, a situation like this, but it's possible to live in a nation that's ungodly and getting more godless day by day and week after week. I don't know if you know anybody like that, but you know what? But you know what? The God of the Bible still calls you to be a person of integrity, to still be a person of obedience and faithfulness to Him in spite of and regardless of what may be taking place in the culture and the environment around you, whether it be food, whether it be media, whether it be you know, things we listen to, that we watch. All of these, these things are, are attacking from culture, from the world around us, the values and the truths and the principles from God's Word. What does God call us to? To stand firm on Him and to trust in Him. And that as we t take that stand, God will honor, God will bless our obedience and our faithfulness to him. Great, great truth for us to see. Uh, I was talking with an individual a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, I shared in, in one of my messages about Caleb being a rule follower. I mean, he is, uh, he, and all of our kids are pretty much rule followers, and Shelly and I are that way too. I mean, if something says don't do it, we're like, okay, you know, don't do it. That, that's, you know, how we do. Uh, but uh, like Daniel today, this is total side note, and we're not going to get to Job tonight so we'll just wrap up here um Yesterday at school, they were playing a game, and a, a kid hit a ball, and it did something or other, and the, the gym teacher called everybody together and said, if you do that, you're going to sit in time out. Well, apparently it was like an accident, and the kid wound up getting in trouble. Daniel, his favorite thing of every single day is pretty much P.E. He got in the car yesterday at dinner last night, about had tears in his eyes, didn't want to go to school last night, get out of the van this morning. He was scared to death that he was going to go to P.E. class today and do what he's supposed to do in the game. is going to hit somebody. He's going to have to sit in time out because that was the rule, and it was a big deal yesterday. He's scared to death that that's what's going to happen. And so as I was sharing this about Caleb a couple weeks ago, an individual came up and said, um, you know, Caleb's like that. What do you tell him? And I said, I tell Caleb pretty much you need to determine what situations you stand firm on and what situations you let it go. A phrase in our house is water on a duck's back. 
It's been raining a lot, so you know what that phrase means? <laughs> well, what does water on a duck's back do? Rolls right off. And so with Caleb you know, and all of our kids now, there's a point where we're like saying, you know what, this isn't an issue where it's got to be exactly right. If Anna sings the wrong words to a song, Caleb can't stand it. Anna, those aren't the words. Well, I want to sing it the way I want to sing it. And then she sings it wrong just to aggravate him, you know. Oh, my God, does it ever end? And it's, or Caleb, water on a duck's back. Son, this isn't that big a deal. But other things like, Caleb, you stand firm on this. This is what God says. This is what he calls us to do. So that's what I told this individual. Uh, and he shared. I really appreciated his heart. It, it meant a lot to me to go home. And I, I did tell Caleb this and encouraged him with it. This individual said, that's me said, I was that way as a child, brought into my adulthood. And he said, it's challenging in, in, in a work environment. He said, you know, you may not run into it a lot in a church, but he said, in a secular work environment, there are all the time opportunities and situations where your supervisors and people want you to compromise a little bit, take a shortcut here, not do this right. And he said, it's hard for me. He said, you know, there, he said, I, I want to do the right thing, and that's part of it. He said, I do. And he said, it can sometimes work against him just in the culture of the people. Uh, this particular scenario, there was a truck route that was going on. The individual drives a truck, and they were wanting him to take a trailer that wasn't registered to his, to his rig. And he said that was, that was wrong against the law. And if he got stopped, he would get the ticket, not his company. And they were on him to do it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he had this big dialogue of finally put his you know, foot firm, not going to do it. They, they did someone else, but said just that, you know, the the, from people's eyes of, well, my goodness, you know, Mr. Goody Goody and all this kind of stuff. So it's very, very hard. But you know what? That is the story of Esther, of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach. That's the, cult, that's the world we live in. What does God call us to? Faithfulness and obedience to him. What does he promise when we do that? Blessings and his presence and his power to work things out for his glory, his honor, his namesake. And you know what? His name isn't even in the book of Esther. But you know what? Her story is in the Bible. This is God's story in the lives of people. And in this scenario, God is honored because of Esther, because of, of Mordecai's obedience and faithfulness to that. And so I just kind of want to leave you with that tonight. Uh, we, we face these challenges day in, day out, week in, week out. We can trust God. Uh, he is faithful. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's what he sets before us. So I want to leave you with that this evening. And then I'd like for us, I think most of you got a card when you came in. Uh, as we've been talking about prayer, I hope you have been praying some. And I hope that's something that you are continuing to grow and develop in. I mentioned uh, still looking, uh, working on some things here. Need to get a hold of uh, Fred and Pastor Andy with some of this. But uh, some, some neat ideas. But I got in the mail uh, earlier this week these cards. Uh, our North American Mission Board uh, oversees mission efforts uh, all around North America. That's why it's called the North American Mission Board. Just pretty cool titling and stuff there, right? Let's, let's imagine that. But uh, there are missionary personnel.